Uh, hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical realities of today. Now, what do I got for you today? Well, today we're going to be talking about the TikTok ban and why it's a bad idea. Then we're going to get into some talk about uh, how the U.S. dollar is being phased out of international transactions. And then we're going to talk about the way forward, how the United States should respond to our currency no longer being the world's reserve. All that and more coming up. Alrighty, let's get into the rapid-fire news. So, we have Russia reportedly capturing about 85% to 90% of Bakhmut. And they have now captured the city's administrative building, which is essentially the uh, city hall, if you want to call it that. But what this tells us is that the battle for Bakhmut appears to be finally coming to a close. Finally, finally, finally coming to a close. After almost a year now, we're seeing... Uh, the writing on the walls the walls are closing in and it looks like the ukrainians are being pushed out now it looks like to me that at this point we can probably maybe potentially safely say that the russians are not going to go for the encirclement like they've they've cut the roads off leaving the ukrainians with like a dirt trail or two in and out of the city to move troops and equipment in and out of the city so and they can shell the dirt, bro. Like, they're, they're that close. So, if they wanted to, they could have completed the encirclement. And they could have done so for a while now. But I think that they're just going to be content with squeezing the Ukrainians out of the city instead of encircling them and destroying them. Although there was, from what I could tell, disagreements between the Russian military and the Wagner group over whether or not to actually go for the encirclement. And I believe Wagner wanted to do the encirclement. But now they, they've decided on just squeezing Ukraine out. But even without the encirclement, this is a decisive defeat for the Ukrainians. And they have, because they continue to feed men and equipment into the pocket that they know they can't hold on to, like they're actively being squeezed out. They know they can't hold on to this pocket, yet they still feed men and equipment into it. So even without the encirclement, they have lost thousands potentially even tens of thousands of men just from bakhmut alone and this is at a time when they're talking about this this uh spring offensive which uh, i i don't even know if it's gonna come because Zelensky himself it has no confidence in this offensive like he's the offensive guy he's the guy saying we need to attack we need we need to attack we need to attack we need peace we need to attack <laughs> We, he's, he's the offense guy and he has no faith whatsoever that this counterattack is going to amount to anything. And that says all that I need to know, especially when we see reports that they're, that they were running low on ammunition, like the numbers of artillery that the Ukrainians were putting up a day, the artillery shows, they, it went from 8,000, well, 11 to 8,000, and then it was five to 8,000. Now it's somewhere between three to 5,000, perhaps even still declining. And it, I'm sticking to the 5,000 number. I just, you know, I think 
that they're still around that number. I don't want to lowball the Ukrainians too much, but it's very possible that they are down to 3,000 shells a day, maybe even lower than that. And they're begging for shells. They're, they just put out a grocery list to the Ukrainians saying that we want 250,000 shells uh, a month. And the Ukrainians don't have it. The, the, uh, the Ukrainians, the Europeans don't have it. As a matter of fact, now that we step back a bit, Europe's response to being asked for 250,000 shells a month, you know what their, their response, now that we look back, it's it, it was to go out and promise that they were going to give a million shells to the Ukrainians over the course of 12 months. And they're out looking and trying to buy ammunition from other countries to give to the Ukrainians. So that, that that was their response to being asked for this number, which tells me that they are not going to be able to supply Ukraine with 250,000 shells a month. They're not going to be able to do it. They If they have to beg and plead for other countries to sell them their stockpiles so they can give it to the Ukrainians to meet that monthly goal, that monthly target, I don't think it's, just, it's going to materialize. I don't think it's going to happen. And even if it did, you're talking about what? A month's worth, a two months worth of ammunition. You've bought the Ukrainians one sixth of a year, assuming that they continued at their current rate of artillery usage. Like, if they have this offensive, they're going to go back up. If we're if we're assuming that they're at three thousand or five thousand, they're going to go up to eight thousand. They're going to go up to ten thousand rounds a day, just fighting the offensive war. So even if they did get this million rounds, uh, these million shells that the Europeans are promising them, they'd blow through it with this offensive that they're talking about. Which again, we don't necessarily know is coming, but I, it looks like the the hype of this thing has sort of taken on a life of its own. I don't think that they, uh, even though they, even though everyone is afraid of it and have no confidence that it's even going to happen, they're still going through with it. They're still pushing ahead, and it's looking like it's. Going, it's going to end in a disaster. I, it doesn't look like it's going to end in a disaster. I can tell you, it's going to end in a disaster. They don't have the men. They don't have the artillery. They, it's. I don't see what they. I don't see what they see. I really don't see. And they're certainly not going to get to Crimea. They're not going to get anywhere near the Sea of Azov. I don't even think they're going to get across the Dnieper. But this is what they're planning, and because they've been talking about it for so long. And because we've been hyping it up for so long, the Russians know that this is what they're planning. So it's like, okay, well, the enemy knows we're coming. They know when we're coming, roughly. And they know the size of our army. They know the tools that we're going to use for the job. They know everything we, that they need to know to fight us back effectively. And we're still going to do it. It's like, okay, this is a terrible idea. It's going to end badly. But it, all in all... It looks like Bakhmut is the battle for Bakhmut is finally coming to a close. It's finally coming to a close, but it is still a decisive defeat for the Ukrainians. We have Ukraine, since we're still on the topic of Ukraine, reportedly running low on their air defense missiles, following months of Russian of Russia's strategic missile bombing campaign. And this was something that I speculated on. Uh, I forget if it was December or in January. It was, and that's because I forget this the episode in general that I was doing all these speculating on the Russian military. But it, I was speculating because one of the other questions that I had uh, bewildered me 
on top of why Russia had taken so long with their backbreaker offensive, which we know has to come. Otherwise, the war is just going to go on in perpetuity. The Ukrainians can't end the war. So we know their offensive is going to come. And on top of speculating on why they hadn't done their offensive yet, the Russian offensive, I speculated on where the Russian Air Force was, because it was, as far as I was concerned, missing in action. Like, you just don't see them. You see, like, a jet fighter or two, and then you just don't see them anymore. It's like, okay, well, where's this air power that the Russians have? We know that they have it. So where is it at? And I think that this was it. The Ukrainians had a lot of air defense systems. They were belt-fed a lot more air defense systems and a lot of air defense missiles. But with the strategic missile bombing campaign that the Russians started back in October when they did that first mobilization, the Ukrainians have been responding to these this salvo after salvo after salvo, fighting missiles with missiles. And what this has done is, as we're apparently seeing now, and even if not now, I'm certain we would reach this point at some point in the not-too-distant future, now they've exhausted their supply of air defense missiles. And the Russians only had to expend missiles of their own to blow through these stockpiles. So now, with the air, the ability of the air defense systems to even shoot anything down being reduced because the ammunition is running low, that opens the door for the Russian Air Force to come in. That opens the door for an environment that is conducive to a massive offensive operation, a massive and sustained offensive operation at that, featuring land and air power. And I think that that's what the Russians have been trying to do for the past few months, now that we have hindsight on our side. I think that when this Russian offensive comes, it's going to be astonishing because you're talking about a, a ukraine a, a russian offensive with hundreds of thousands of men coming in from multiple sides multiple different angles and you, the ukrainians just get crushed because they at this point we're talking about ukraine having run low or out of artillery they're running low on artillery right now they're running low on air defense missiles right now, if we're going to go off these reports. If you run out of our artillery shells, that's it. You've lost the ground war. You cannot fight artillery with rifles. Like, you can't even, they can't even see the artillery crews. That's how far away the artillery is shooting at them from. You can't even see them. How you? There's no way you're going to be able to fight them. You cannot fight artillery with riflemen unless you can close the distance between your rifles and their artillery but again the artillery is far beyond eyesight like you're talking miles away you can't you cannot even see them you can see the shell as it's going up and coming down but you cannot see them you don't know where they are so that's a losing battle you have lost the war on the ground if you lose the artillery war. But on top of that, you've, you don't have the ability to defend your airspace anymore with your air defense. So now you've opened up the air war. You've lost the ground war with artillery if you run out of ammunition for artillery. 
but you now open up the air war if you run out of ammunition for your air defense. And Ukraine is running out of ammunition on both. I think that when this summer comes, we're going to see uh, something horrifying. Uh, some, the Ukrainians don't want to see it. A lot of the Ukraine supporters aren't, are certainly not going to want to see it. Hell, I might not even want to see it. It might be that bad. But I think we're going to see it this summer. The backbreaker offensive. Uh, but uh, in other news, we have Belarusian President Lukashenko visiting Putin in Moscow as their union state continues to grow and grow stronger and become more and more integrated. We, uh, I point to that joint Russian and Belarusian military units all the time, uh, the deployment of Russian nuclear missiles and weapons into Belarus, uh, which I believe is still being manned by the Russians, not by the Belarusians, but given that they are on track to becoming the same country, eh, that doesn't mean too much. <laughs> but you see the integration with military increasingly right now, but also going on in the background, and it's not a good thing to sort of ignore this, I believe that this is just as important, is the economic integration to the point where these two are these two countries are essentially a, a common market right now, Belarus and Russia. They're a common market, essentially. They're cooperating on military, they're cooperating on economics, they're both part of the Belt and Road. So when you see that, it's it looks like a complete union with Belarus is going to happen perhaps by the end of this decade. Now, I, that's just my speculation. That's just my guess. We could be looking at a longer time frame than that. But we can see the acceleration here in this merger between Russia and Belarus. We can see it now. All that's left is a common currency. And then we'd really be looking at uh, a singular entity between the two. So that's something that we're looking at in the not-too-distant future. Uh, we also have Emmanuel Macron and Ursula von der Leyen meeting Xi Jinping in Beijing. And one of the things that they wanted to do was to get China to talk some sense into Russia and to try to have China negotiate the peace deal. Which is a little strange to me because, you know, China's the enemy. We're supposed to be afraid of China and the expansion of Chinese influence. We can't allow that. We have to go fight them. And it's like, well... If that's the story, if that's the story, then how then are you coming to China begging them for the peace deal? And I think what this is, is an admission of defeat. Now, it's not a very humble admission of defeat. It's not a very respectable admission of defeat. It's hidden under layers of arrogance and ego, but it is an admission of defeat because you're going to China to try to get them to broker a peace between the belligerent powers Ukraine and Russia. Why? Because you yourself cannot broker that peace. The United States, I mean, John Kirby literally said literally said that a ceasefire is unacceptable. Like what? A ceasefire is unacceptable? So the United States isn't even going to make the attempt at not, not until the, after the 2024 elections. So, like, 
The United States is that we're not going to be the ones to negotiate this peace. The Europeans have they don't have the political capital to negotiate this peace because they have been exposed over the past year as having been in on the take with the Ukrainians, not just because they've belt fed the Ukrainians weapons and money and equipment, but because it it's come out from Angela Merkel and Francois Hollande that they had no intention of ever making a peace with Russia. No intention. In fact, the stated aim was to dismantle and dismember Russia, to destroy Russia, and to use Ukraine as the weapon with, by which they would do the destroying of Russia. So they're not going to be able to negotiate this peace. And who does that leave? That leaves what? India, Turkey, Israel, and China. Now, I bring up uh, Turkey and Israel because there were talks between Russia and Ukraine in Turkey and in Israel. So that would make them potential players. India is going about its business. They're technically open to negotiating the peace and mediating the peace, but they're perfectly fine with staying completely out of it. So they're not exactly a, a front runner in that contender. Uh, but you would think that they'd be more up to the task than China. Or, or at least that you think that they'd be on higher up on the list than China for these Eurocrats. But they go to China. And they, because they want China to try to rein Russia in. But I think what this is, and this is why I call it an admission of defeat, I think what this is, is an attempt. Because it's an attempt to try to get China to broker the peace so that you don't end up with a peace that is uh, imposed on Ukraine by Russia. That's what I think that they're trying to avoid. They're trying to avoid the PR nightmare that comes with going all in on this Russo-Ukrainian war, giving a trillion—well, not not trillions. Uh, although they would get there if they had the time, but billions and billions and billions of dollars given to the Ukrainians, billions and billions and billions in military equipment given to the Ukrainians just for Russia to still win the war, that is a PR nightmare. However, even though we're all, we're told that China's the enemy and we have to be afraid of China, we have to be ready, we have to be ready to fight another cold war with China. But even though we're, that's what we're being told about China and how they're the most dangerous thing on the planet right now, they're going to China to get them to broker the deal. Which tells you everything you need to know about uh, what they really think about China. But... I think that that there's also uh, some major propaganda potential. I I mean, uh, uh, news potential in a narrative like that, where oh we, because they can market that as uh, some sort of uh, victory. It's like oh we went and we. I can't even take them. I can't even take my impression of them seriously. Because oh we went we. Stared down that authoritarian dictator. We did the hard work. We were adults, and we and we had the hard conversations with Xi Jinping, and we sat down and we told him in no uncertain terms, "You have to be the one to broker this peace." And then he did, and we oh we got China to turn on their ally Russia. We we broke their alliance and got them to side with the West. Uh, 
uh, we broke this strategic partnership and we we saved Ukraine from destruction against Russian expansion and we we didn't let Russia go unchecked in its ag- aggression you know yeah, that that's how they'd market this uh, i mean that's that's what that would be the, the the story yep that's how i imagine it would go down uh but i don't think that's how this is going to go the chinese basically told them to go uh, screw themselves and i'm pretty sure this war is going to end in a in a enforced settlement that is imposed on the ukrainians by russia anyway that's all i think that's how i believe this war is going to end and there's not much the europeans can do about it so they're just going to take that L and that PR nightmare that comes with it. Uh, we have Japan defying the oil price cap by buying Russian oil at above the $61 specified cap. And, you know, uh, it's, it's something I don't, I don't understand about these alliance structures. It's like, we want you to sabotage your economic, uh, your economic interests. We want you to ignore them and we want you to go against them because we don't like who you're making deals with. It's like, what? Like, I buy oil from Russia. And you, because you don't like Russia, because you want to cap Russia's oil at a certain price. Now I have to buy it at the price that you have specified. Who are you? <laughs> who are you? It's like, what are we offering? It does. It it boggles my mind when I think about this, and these alliances, and how they're structured. It's like you want me, and like pretend you're playing a game, like a civilization or Heart Divine or what name you, what have you. You're playing a game. You're looking after your country, and you get to like the modern age, and you're buying oil. You see that it's cheap to buy oil from Russia, so you're like, okay, I'm just gonna. I I don't have it at home, so I may as well buy it from someone. I'm gonna buy it from Russia. They're they're offering me a good deal. They're a stable and reliable partner. They're not going to sanction me. And then you get these, you get a, a proposal, an, an alliance for an alliance from the West. And they're telling you, hey, if you just sacrifice your oil imports from Russia, we'll offer you uh, an alliance. And it's like, well, hold the hell up. Why would I do that? Who, who are you? Leave me alone. Go back to where you came from. You're you're not helping me at all. That that's how I would look at this if I was playing a game, and I'm pretty sure that's how every serious leader around the world looks at this as well. Because what are we offering them? We we tell the Germans, hey, we we know that you get all your oil and gas from Russia because it's cheap for you to do so, and you need cheap energy for your industry. But we don't like that you're buying it from Russia, so we need you to stop buying oil and gas from Russia, or else it's like oh. Who are you? Who are you? What does this even mean to you? Uh, up, 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 up. Keep on asking questions and Nord Stream's gone. But we we aren't even a party to the Ukraine war. Up and it's gone. <laughs> it's like, if this is how we treat allies, who needs enemies? And the more I think about it, the more it doesn't make sense why anyone would want to associate with us when these are the terms we're offering for them. And I, I was listening to... Uh, Charlie Kirk, uh, he I was on the Patrick Bet David podcast, very good podcast, and I, I agree with Charlie on a lot, 
uh, pertaining mainly pertaining to domestic policy. If you if you know me, you know there are very few I, people I agree with on foreign policy. But um, he was going on on a rant about India. How India was like a, a unreliable country, unreliable to us because they weren't a part of our block. They wouldn't make themselves exclusive to the West. And he goes, oh, they're, they're unreliable. They're, they'll do. They're doing deals with Iran and Pakistan and uh, Russia. And it's like what you've described is a country that doesn't care what you want them to do, but is willing to look out for its own interests. India first, so to speak. They're making deals with whoever they need to for their own benefit of their own country. And it's like, well, yes, that's that's common sense. That's trade with everyone and alliances with no one. We ought to be learning from the Indians, quite frankly, and we should. We really should. We could do it better if we did it. But that's a just a something I was uh, wanted to voice out here. But yeah, Japan's defining the price cap, and I'm pretty sure they won't be the first or the last to do so. Because no one wants to get embargoed. Because if you go along with this price cap, the Russians are going to embargo you. So it's like, hmm, do I buy, do I buy the oil for $61, which is the market price anyway? Oh, oh boy, I bought it for $62, bro. Do I buy it for a dollar more or maybe a few cents more? Because the, the price cap is at market price anyway. So it's not like I'm, it's not like I'm saving much in terms of money. Do I buy it at the market price, which is just about the same as the price cap? Or do I try my hand at enforcing this price cap and get embargoed? It's like, who thought of this idea? Who thought that this was a good idea? You are importers. The Europeans are importer nations. Russia is the energy exporter. You, you the importer, do not get to dictate to your main supplier how much the product is going to cost. That's not how this goes. It's it's so confusing. I don't understand it. I don't understand it. But I can tell you it's goofy. That's what I can tell you. Uh, and last but not least, we have the uh, some Tennessee Republicans suspending a, uh, Democrats for fomenting unrest in the Tennessee state capitol. They suspended three. Well, they voted on suspending three of the Democrats who were responsible for fomenting unrest in the Tennessee state capitol. One was uh, the vote did not go through. It didn't reach enough votes. Uh, the supermajority needed. Two were suspended. But as of uh, just a few moments prior to me recording this podcast, uh, one was unsuspended, so he was allowed to resume functions in Congress. So as of now, there's only one person suspended, even though two were voted to be suspended. So there's that. And now we'll get into the uh, meat of this episode in just a moment. Alrighty, let's get into the meat of this episode today. And we'll start with the uh, TikTok ban and why it's a bad idea. So as of now, there are, from what I'm aware of, two pieces of legislation, both aimed at banning TikTok. And one of them, and this is what I believe is the more notorious of the other one well, of the two, I should say, uh, this one is called the Restrict Act. And uh, it's, uh, I, I can tell you, listening to these depositions has been uh, comical, to tell you the least. Uh, there was one where they asked if TikTok was able to access the internet, and I'm like, oh, brother. <laughs> but I just can't help but think, when we take a step back, 
It's like, we're going to ban TikTok, but not Facebook or Google or Twitter or YouTube or Instagram or Snapchat. We're going to ban TikTok. Yeah? It's What's the purpose? Well, oh, we have to keep the, the communist Chinese from spying on Americans and stealing their data. Well, okay, that, that sounds nice and dandy, except the all, every other company that I just named not only steals your data, but they sell it. The Chinese don't need to steal it when these companies are selling the data. Like, at one point in time, Facebook knew when when you woke up in the morning, when you went to bed, when you went to work, when you got home, where you went to, you know, where you went when you were trying to, you know, get away from it all, where you went for recreation. They knew when you went on the bathroom. They knew when you went on the toilet. Uh, there was a point in time when Facebook had all that information on the population. And they probably still have that kind of information on large swaths of the population still using Facebook. So it seems strange to me that we're going to obsess over TikTok spying on you because TikTok uh, spies on your phone even when you're not using the app, uh, even if you've only touched the app like once in like, like the last month and it's still... But it's okay, but all the other apps I just mentioned do the same thing. Except they do it worse. They do it more than TikTok. So what are we concerned about here? I mean, we're, we're concerned about TikTok spying on Americans, but not any of those other apps? It's, it's, it's okay when the American apps are doing it, too, but not the Chinese Communist Party. You know, I, I, there was another argument about... um how it was bad for the brain to be just scrolling and death scrolling without ever watching or really engaging in any content. And I, I can understand that. Like I've, I've done it myself on YouTube when I'm just scrolling and scrolling. And then I come to the realization after spending 20 hours, not 20 hours, 20 minutes of my morning before work, I come to the realization that, wow, there are hundreds of millions of videos on this platform literally billions of hours of content at my fingertips in the palm of my hand and there's still ain't shit to watch that's <laughs> that's a realization i'm sure we've all come to uh 20 to 30 minutes too late and you know but i can understand that but again if you're gonna ban tiktok for that why not ban youtube i i, I just told you my story i was doing it on youtube what about instagram what about Snapchat? What about Facebook or Twitter? Oh my goodness, Twitter. We're going to ban TikTok for these things, but not, you know, all the affirmation companies as if TikTok was somehow worse than them. Like the things that they are accusing TikTok of, the, the crimes against humanity that they're accusing TikTok of, all these other companies collectively are worse. They're worse. If we're talking about spying, even if we're talking about spying, they're still worse. But we're gonna we're obsessed and we're concerned about TikTok spying on us, but not the FBI, the CIA, or the NSA, the DOJ, or the DHS. All these all these federal agencies spying on me constantly. Like on its face, this thing is silly. And then you get into the substance and realize that the bill is just a blatant violation of the Constitution. You know, like it has rightly earned its nickname as the Patriot Act of technology 
the Patriot Act of Technot. Like, and that's what it is. Because you look at it, and the government is essentially asking to control your data. They 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 want TikTok to either hand the company over to United States companies so the government can spy on you, or the, and then on top of that, they want the government to have the ability to monitor your data, to be able to analyze and, and seize your data whenever they want in the event that you say or do or they any activity they detect that they don't like. They want the ability to come in and seize your data and, and look through your data and do whatever they want. They they have they're under no obligation to give it back to you. They're under no obligation to do it so in a timely manner. They're under no obligation to limit their searches to any specific thing or any specific one. They, they don't even have to alert you that they're going to do it. They can just take your data whenever they whenever they want and then do with it whatever they want for however long that they want. Up to and including just destroying your account if that's what they feel is appropriate because they get to decide what the parameters are that of you violating their terms and they're not going to specify them to you either. And the terms are so vague that they even if they did specify them to you, they could still just do whatever they wanted. It's a violation of the Constitution. I mean, like, you're, you're just going to go through my data? Like, uh, the Fourth Amendment? Who, who is that? I bet she's ugly. Well, uh, she is actually a piece of paper with some very important words written on it. In fact, I have, I have her right here with me, old baby. And it reads as such, The right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated. And no warrants shall issue, but upon probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. No un, no undue searches without warrants, and the warrants have to be specific. No violations of people's privacy. And yet that's exactly what this bill is aiming to do. Like, in this digital age, your account is your digital person because you you need an account to operate on tiktok facebook google you, you need it well you don't necessarily need it but everyone has it so it effectively becomes an essential especially if you want to store information for yourself to use at later points in time but well in in case of interactions you can't you can't do any sort of interaction whatsoever if you don't have an account so people need an account uh, in in that sense, to really interact with the app. And with an account comes your digital persons. And your digital person has all your data on it. Yes, your birth, your date of birth, who you are, your name, maybe even your card information if you routinely buy something on the website. You know, things like that. All this information, all this data that is yours and is supposed to be private for you. The government wants to be able to come in and take that, seize that, look through it whenever they want, and they can just lock, they can lock you out of your account, they can delete your account, if they feel that you're not conducive towards a, a, a healthy society as they would define it, but then again they allow kids to uh, mutilate themselves and take hormone blockers. So their definition of a healthy society isn't exactly a healthy society. 
when we have depression at the highest rates ever. They're and you're talking about people who openly speak about keeping you from getting a gun. People who believe in hate speech, which is again blatant violation of the Constitution. Like these are not the people who, in any day, quite frankly, but specifically these people, have no right to be telling us what is and isn't appropriate. Because they can't even define that for themselves. But they want to control your data. Your digital person, is they, they want to violate it. That is a violation of your property. Your accounts on these platforms, on these websites, that is a digital representation of you and who you are. Because in this digital age, in this digitalized society, we have digital, essentially avatars, a digital avatar that represents us. So by violating the data on that avatar, you are violating us. You're violating our privacy. We have private data and information on our accounts that are supposed to be just for us, not for you. And they're violating that. It's not just a violation of the Fourth Amendment and seizure of your assets, your asset being your data. I mean, you shoot, these companies sell your data to advertisers. But it's a violation of the First Amendment. Because uh, if you want to speak and be heard in this digital age, you need your digital person to do the speaking. You need an account on a platform. But if the government is able to come in and shut you down whenever they want, they can shut down your speech. Like you are listening to me right now in a digital way. You, you have a digital account on some platform and I have a digital account on this platform where like, I'm speaking to you through uh, Anchor or I guess it's a Spotify for podcasters right now. But that's how I'm speaking to you. And that's how you're hearing me uh, through any of the other apps that you have a digital avatar on your account. You are listening to me in a digital manner and I am speaking to you through a digital manner. This is how we communicate in the digital age. So to violate your ability to hear me or anyone else is to violate your first amendment and to take seize my account or anyone else's account is also a violation of the, of the first amendment. Cause what's the first amendment, the right and the freedom to speech assembly press petition of government for redresses and religion. If you cannot hear me speak, your right to the press. If you cannot hear me or anyone else that you get your news from, you cannot hear us speak because your account has been messed with or because our account has been messed with because the government doesn't like what we're saying. Well, that's your freedom of the press violated. If you have your account being tampered with by the government to where you cannot speak out freely, or if you say something and the government decides that they don't like what you said, so now they're going to crack down on your account, that is a violation of your speech. If you cannot tune in to a stream where lots of other people are watching, you're violent because the government's tampering with your account, your digital person, you, your right to assemble has been violated. And if you are getting banned because you have negative views and opinions on what the government is doing, that's a violation of your redress of grievances. grievances. And we wouldn't even get into how the DOJ views Christians and Catholics as domestic terrorists, that's a violation of your right to religion. 
like no matter how you cut this, this is just blatantly unconstitutional. And I do not appreciate their abhorrent and in your face disrespect of our constitution. But the Chinese are the problem. Okay. Whatever you say, whatever you say. I hope this shit gets shot down faster than we shot down that balloon. <laughs> but we shall see. We shall see. Hopefully the courts do something useful. Uh, but we'll have to wait and see. But now I want to get into some talk about what's happening in the international scene with the dollar being phased out. And uh, it's not really like a, a single story. It's more of an, an amalgamation of different stories that I have seen over the course of the last week. So I've sort of put them together. So I apologize if it comes off as a bit uh, disjointed and hard to follow at times, but uh, bear with me. But we'll start with Iran joining OPEC. Now, from what I have understood in assembling the, and piecing together this segment today, I believe Iran already was a part of OPEC. But because they and Arabia were on such bad terms, they weren't like a real active participant in OPEC. But as of now, with this rapprochement between Iran and Saudi Arabia, they're coming back into the fray and they will resume their participation in OPEC. Uh, so there's that. So they're joining, quotation marks, OPEC. And OPEC Plus has also announced production cuts. And uh, you you see all sorts of people complaining about oh they're, they're gonna they're benefiting Putin they're they're working in Putin's favor because they're gonna allow Putin to refill his coffers and fund his war machine uh, because Russia gets so much of its money from its oil and natural gas sales and it's like okay sure but again we would be benefiting from this. We again, so many people just lose the plot in their anti-Russia fervor, and I'm I'm certain more people know this. What I'm what I'm about to say in the back of their minds, because everyone uh, who is making these complaints are simultaneously aware that we were energy independent not too long ago. But had we been energy independent at the time, these production cuts would have worked to the benefit of United States. It would have it would have been benefiting us. We'd be thanking them for cutting their production so that the price could go up and we could export our oil for higher prices. We would be thanking them. We'd be thanking them. I mean, we are a massive producer of oil, but we're a massive consumer. So the amount of oil that we'd be exporting anyway is always going to be like less than, say, Russia or Arabia. So the amount we have available for export is less than them. So if they're going to cut their production, great. Well, <laughs> we can sell our access at the new higher prices. Like I just did a a, a whole, I just went through like a whole uh, research journey, digging through uh, the price of oil and the break-even prices for shale oil in the United States, how much oil the United States is producing. And what I found is that most shale oil wells in the United States, and this is the more expensive, they're more expensive to produce than traditional oil, but most shale oil wells are profitable at around $50 a barrel. The break-even for like the Eagleford and the, uh, the Eagleford and the Permian Basin, which are both in like Texas. These are, these are areas where you, the 
fracking for shale oil happens. So like they're at like 48 and 49 dollars for break even. So $50 a barrel is technically profitable for them. And then with like the Bakken in the Dakotas, that's like $90 a barrel. But shoot, with prices over a hundred, every every ounce of American shale oil is profitable. So if OPEC is going to continue cutting production, that should be great for American business. Oh, but we've sabotaged our energy independence. We've sabotaged it. And by we, I mean the Biden administration. So now we are a net importer of oil. We're a net importer of oil. We're, we're just blowing through the strategic petroleum reserve. And now the people that we import the oil from, unnecessarily, but who we're now importing the oil from, have gotten together and decided they're going to raise the price because they export the oil. When you raise the prices of something that you export by exporting less of it collectively, you benefit. But here's the thing. We're not a member of OPEC, so we we would not have been obligated to go along with these price cuts. I mean, these production cuts. So the price would have gone up because the biggest exporters would have exported less. And then we, a more minor exporter, even under energy independence, and more minor energy, energy exporter, we would have been able to benefit more. We would have benefited more because not only are our needs satisfied here at home, but then there's excess for our companies to make some big profits overseas instead of having to offload their costs and expenses onto us. It'd be the best of times for the consumer and the producer here in the United States. And we'd be thanking OPEC for raising the price. We'd be thanking them for cutting back on production so we could eat up more of their market share, at least for the time being. It's inevitable that they're going to go back down on those prices by raising their production. But we, were we, if we were energy independent, we, we'd be thanking them. It's just so strange how we're in this situation. And it's uh, aggravating, to tell you the least. But it's, it really goes to show what good leadership can do for you. And how differently a situation can work out for you with the right economic policy. And it's the same thing with Taiwan. Like you have chips on Taiwan. If we were a major producer of semiconductors, Taiwan getting invaded would be good for American business. And we still wouldn't be able, we still wouldn't have to go over to defend them. If we were energy independent, OPEC raising the price by cutting production would have benefited our industries. Like good e economic policy in the United States could counteract all of these disruptions overseas to the point where they become beneficial to us. We can literally invert the effect of these disruptions. We can literally flip them on their head and make them work for us with sound domestic policy. But instead, we're focused on, oh, we need to go over there and make sure they're, they're exporting oil at the price that we want them to uh, export at. And we're going to go stop the BRICS and, and all this other nonsense, these foreign, these random foreign policy adventures. But uh, uh, I digress. Just we'd be doing well. Just know that much. We'd be doing very, very well if we were energy independent and we would be thanking OPEC for doing this. But in other news, we have India and Indonesia agreeing to do trade in Indian rupees, which is one thing that's happening here. That's the first deal I've seen. Oh, excuse me. That's the first deal I've seen where it's Indian rupees. Because usually it's either uh, Chinese yuan or local currency. 
but this is the first time that I've seen India get in on this action. So, and Indonesia is no small country to be doing that with. Indonesia is like 260 something million people. Or is it 210? Uh, yeah, I'll look it up eventually. <laughs> I'll look it up eventually. But we have them agreeing to do trade in Indian rupees. We have China and Malaysia. And here's an interesting thing. We have China and Malaysia agreeing. Well, they're not, they haven't agreed yet, but they're in talks for establishing an Asian monetary fund. Oh, and I have the population figures on Indonesia. They're at 273 million. Oh, wow. They're, they're going to pass us up if we don't get our act together. But I, I think, I think us, I think we'll have a population boom courtesy of a, a Donald A. Trump uh, with the, his baby boom project. I can't wait to spend. Uh, I, and I'll get into why I believe that this century will actually be perhaps the best century on record for the United States towards the end of the episode, uh, which seems to contradict everything I'm telling you right now and how it's just getting worse and worse and worse. But I believe it, and I'll explain why towards the end of the episode. But yeah, uh, we have China and Malaysia talking about an Asian monetary fund, which would essentially be used to sort of bypass the dollar because the monetary fund, the international monetary fund, that's and that's dollar denominated. So an Asian monetary fund would likely use yuan as its primary denomination, but you, it would allow all the countries in Asia, primarily ASEAN nations to bypass the dollar. And considering that Asia is sort of the, the biggest growing economies, the fastest growing economies right now uh, outside of say Africa or even India, That'd be huge. That'd be absolutely huge if this were to come into being. And there was reports. I was listening to Rogue News the other day. There was, they came up with this report. I wasn't able to corroborate this, so take it with a grain of salt. But they were talking about how U.S. Uh, the usage of the U.S. dollar in global trade is now down to 41%, and it was set to reach 38% next year. Uh, so, uh, And for context, it was, uh, according to them at 50% at the beginning of 2022. So uh, again, I haven't, I haven't found where they got that information from. I haven't been able to cooperate that myself. Uh, the numbers I'm looking at are still 59% and above uh, for various figures. But if they are right, if their sources are right, and I do like my, me some rogue news, if their sources are right, we could be looking at the dollar declining to a third or less of global trade uh, by the by 2024. Well, by the end of 2024, I should say. And at that point, we're probably just not going to be the world's reserve currency anymore. And, and Trump said it. The dollar is not going to be the world's uh, standard anymore. Now, I think his solution is going to be what we're going to talk about later on. And it's a very, very good solution. <laughs> I, I have some good news for once. But yeah, it, if these numbers are what we're looking at, and it's not hard to believe them when we see all that's going on, we could be looking at the dollar not being the reserve currency within the next two years, which is a massive development. And potentially faster than that with all these all these deals being brokered in local currencies. Like, but again, you have India, China, and Russia doing deals in local currencies. Russia and Turkey agreed to do trade in local currencies. China and Arabia agreed to do trade in local currencies. Uh, Brazil, 
and some other country, although I forget who it was, they agreed to do trade in local currencies. Everybody's doing trade in their own currencies, basically. That's that's what's happening right now. And so with that, they're, they're either doing it in local trade, uh, in local currencies, or they're doing it with yuan. And we're all, there's also talks now of a BRICS currency coming into being, which would offer up a third alternative to the dollar. So with three alternatives to the dollar, uh, eventually, uh, again, the BRICS currency has to come into being first. But we can always see the writing on the wall with these countries doing trade in local currencies and trade in yuan getting away from the dollar. And countries buying up gold to get really, really get away from the dollar. And you, have, uh, I believe it was either Kenya or Zimbabwe. They were talking about uh, getting away from the dollar and doing so as quickly as possible because the market was going to change. And I'm like, okay, if the Africans aren't afraid to speak out, even though we overthrow their governments all the time, they're, if they are not afraid to tell us to go uh, suck a fat one, well, then something big is happening, and it's it's happening fast. It's, that's what I'm looking at right now. Uh, I think the dollar is not going to be the world's reserve currency anymore, and there's no saving that. There's no say, not as long as we're going to sit here and go, oh, we're going to sanction the countries we don't like. As, as so long as sanctions are on the table. And they're on the table for the left and the right. Even the America first conservatives cannot give up the sanctions weapon. They want to sanction China. They want to sanction Iran. and all that. As long as sanctions are on the table, which is essentially the freezing and the stealing of a, a country's assets. Because uh, uh, depending on the type of sanction you use, of course, like we did with Russia and Afghanistan, where we just froze and then stole their assets with the mother of all sanctions in Russia's case. Well, who wants to keep their stuff in dollars? Again, these are just self-defeating policies. But so long as sanctions are on the table, your money is not safe. Because all it takes is one person in the United States to say, hey, we don't like your government. So we're going to overthrow you. And it's like, okay, well, uh, well hey, we, we don't like what you're doing. We, we don't like what you're doing. So we're going we're gonna to free, we're going to sanction you. We're going to freeze your asset. We're going to freeze your bank accounts. We're going to freeze your reserves. And you're not allowed to have them because we don't like your government. It's like, well, that was none of your business, but okay. It, it's self-defeating. We do these things and we, we get all morally righteous about it. You listen to people talk about sanctions. It's, they're all morally righteous about it. But the, the end result inevitably is no one wants to use your currency anymore. They didn't have an alternative before, and now they do. And now they're so fed up that they're just going to use local currencies and take advantage of, you know, digital banking. If they have digital banking, who needs your dollar? They can just exchange their own currency. They do more trade with China than us anyway, for a lot of them. So they can just use yuan. Oh, there's an alternative. Oh, we do trade with India, Russia, and China, and South Africa, and Brazil. Well, why don't why not we use the BRICS currency? Oh, there's another alternative. All these alternatives to the dollar, and it's uh, you, you see countries just joining the BRICS and OPEC like fire. And uh, while we're on the topic, while we're on the topic, before we move on, uh, I think it'd be useful for us to sort of take stock of 
who has joined the BRICS and who has joined OPEC? Because I'll be honest with you, I've, I've certain I've gotten lost. <laughs> like it seems like every other week there's a new applicant to the BRICS. So uh, let's let's look at the list, shall we? All right. So we'll start with the BRICS. The BRICS. So the list for the BRICS currently stands at the core members. Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. Then we have Argentina, Iran, Iran, and Algeria who have applied for membership formally, while the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, Egypt, Indonesia, Saudi Arabia, Syria, Kazakhstan, Nicaragua, Nigeria, Senegal, Thailand, and the UAE are still contemplating the decision of whether or not to join. That is a uh, a lot more than just the initial five countries. That's a lot. That's a lot of countries. So that's the BRICS and the BRICS Plus. As for OPEC, the list is Algeria, Angola, Congo, uh, the Republic, not the Democratic Republic, Equatorial Guinea, Gabon, Iran, Iraq, Kuwait, Libya, Nigeria, Saudi Arabia, and the, uh, the UAE and Venezuela. Those are the core members, while OPEC Plus currently adds Russia, Kazakhstan, Malaysia, Azerbaijan, Bahrain, Brunei, now Mexico, Oman, Sudan, and South Sudan. So these organizations are expanding with a good deal of overlap. Uh, notably, you have Russia you have Russia and Saudi Arabia and, and Iran overlapping on a lot of these, uh, well, not Iran, but... Uh, you have Nigeria overlapping, Saudi Arabia overlapping, the UAE overlapping. So a good deal of overlap, uh, Kazakhstan overlapping. So there is a great deal of overlap between the OPEC and the BRICS. OPEC and the BRICS. And I find that very interesting. Very interesting. Uh, so... I don't, well, I don't, I don't think that the organizations will become one and the same, certainly not, but given that OPEC, uh, well, I mean, the BRICS is more broader in terms of its application uh, openness than OPEC, because if the only way you get into OPEC is if you're an energy producer, which essentially means that the only countries that could join OPEC at this point would be, well, United States and Canada, <laughs> but we'd be better off not being in OPEC, I'll be honest with you, so... Yeah, that's that's a, a lot longer of a list than I thought it would be, but it's very useful to keep track of if you can. Shoot, that, that's a lot of countries. But these organizations are expanding uh, faster than they have before. And it, it spells the death of the petrodollar when the BRICS and OPEC uh, are getting together to overthrow it. But I don't think we have to be too worried about that uh be worried okay don't don't, don't get complacent uh me personally i will attempt to be buying silver in the not too distant future i so all right so do what you can right i like i would not be responsible if i wasn't telling you to be prepared you, like go buy some i don't know uh, some tools some get you some gold if you can get you some silver you know Take some money out of the bank, keep it in cash. 
you know, buy valuables, non-perishable food, perhaps tools like you use in a garage, maybe even a generator or two. Worst case scenario, you resell the shit on eBay or Amazon and you make some of your money back, all of your money back, or maybe even you turn a profit. That's the worst case scenario. Best case scenario is when the shit hits the fan, you are more than prepared. So that's what I advocate at this point in time. And the earlier you can get started, the better. I understand everyone's situation is going to be different and everyone's response is going to have to be different. But we're looking at a the second Great Depression, and it's it's going to be first in terms of its uh, severity. I believe it will be the greatest depression in U.S. history. So with that in mind, let's look at how things are going to be brighter on the other side. Because <laughs> yeah. I, I, I read this, and I was so happy that I stumbled across this. Because this is the way forward, right? What I'm about to propose, what I'm about to talk to you about is the way forward. And it is, get this, the Gold Standard Restoration Act. You heard that right, my lovely listeners. The Gold Standard Restoration Act has been proposed in Congress. This is it. This is the way forward. This this is it. Uh, Representative Alex Mooney of West Virginia, Representative... Uh, Andy Biggs of Arizona, and Paul Gozar of Arizona. My goodness, you're all just so lovely, aren't you? This is it. This is the way forward. This is exactly what I've been saying we needed to do, and that was before our currency was on the verge of being overthrown as the world's reserve currency. This is it. The I, I can't believe I'm even looking at this. It, it's, it doesn't feel real. <laughs> it doesn't feel real. But... <clears throat> uh, so this is a, it's being introduced. It's HR of 2435. If you want to look at it, the gold standard restoration act, and it's meant to facilitate. And I'm reading off of this, uh, Yahoo article that I've sort of copy pasted down so that I can read to you with my notes. Uh, it's meant to facilitate the repegging of the volatile federal reserve note to a fixed weight of gold bullion. So essentially, a certain number of ounces for a certain number of dollars, a.k.a. the gold standard. So you can only have as many dollars in circulation as you have gold. So if I have, say, if the price of gold is like $50 for an ounce of gold, $50, we'll make it 100 We'll make it 100 all right? It was lower before, but we'll make it 100 for to make this easier on me. An ounce of gold is worth 100 bucks. If the bank has, say, 10 ounces of gold on it, then you can print up to 1,000 bucks, right? But up to 1,000, up, you, you've run out, you don't have any more gold, you can't back up those extra dollars, you can't go any farther. So that stops inflation. And in fact, if the economy continues to grow, when you're at your maximum money supply, you get deflation. The dollar's value actually increases because now the demand for it is going up even though the supply for it is constrained to mining of gold. And this will also incentivize gold mining operations in the United States. That's an industry that's going to come back because you need real physical assets to back up the dollar now. So all this money 
all this money that we would have in our economy would be backed up by physical production, which should mean an actual aspect, an actual growth of the economy, an industry in the economy to support the money that we're printing. It it just makes sense. I'm so happy. <laughs> oh, I sound so ugly. <laughs> but this is it. This is it. I, I can't I can't I still can't believe I'm reading this. But yes. The Gold Standard Act facilitated the repacking of the volatile Federal Reserve note to a fixed weight of gold bullion. Fixed weight of gold bullion. So for every a certain number of dollars is attached to a certain number of ounces of gold. So the act was actually introduced by Mooney back in December uh, last year, but it has resurfaced right now with a, a little bit more support. He got two extra members of Congress to come along with him for the ride. But Upon the passage of this House resolution, uh, H.R. 2435, the U.S. Treasury and the Federal Reserve are given 24 months to publicly disclose all gold holdings and gold transactions, after which time the Federal Reserve note, or the dollar, would be formally repegged to a fixed weight of gold at its then market price. Uh, so they they have to disclose all their gold holdings and all their gold transactions. And then based, uh, I assume based on those transactions and how much gold that they have, the dollar, the, the amount of ounces of gold for the certain number of dollars would then be fixed based on the markets. And so then that would essentially become the new gold standard, the new exchange rate of gold for dollars. And then Federal Reserve notes would as I said, become fully redeemable for and exchangeable with gold at the new price. With the U.S. Treasury and its gold reserves backstopping Federal Reserve banks as a guarantor because the Treasury would keep the gold and the banks would only be able to issue as much currency as there was gold on hand at the Treasury, which in, a, in effect gives the Treasury control of the dollar rather than the Federal Reserve, which is the way it should be. And yes, yes, and more yes. Yes, yes, and more yes. This is what we need. This is this is what I want. This is what I need. Oh, this is it's so beautiful, people. It's so beautiful. But I'm gonna keep reading. I'm gonna keep reading. A gold standard would protect against Washington's irresponsible spending habits. And this is Representative Mooney speaking. He says a gold standard would protect against Washington's irresponsible spending habits and the creation of money out of thin air. Yes. Price, <laughs> he continues, prices would be shaped by economics rather than the instincts of bureaucrats. No longer would American families, businesses, and the economy as a whole be at the mercy of the Federal Reserve and reckless Washington spenders who, as of right now, have gotten us $31 trillion into debt. So this would when we're talking about balancing the federal budget by constraining the currency, you can force a balancing of the budget. You can force it by outflanking the, the people printing the money through legislation. The gold standard restoration act uh, would also make several uh, findings as to the harm of the federal reserve system. Uh, and this is the case for why they want to reestablish the gold standard in the country, they, they point to the, the harm done by the Federal Reserve. 
uh, and the uh, uh, specifically within the time period following 1971, when Nixon temporarily suspended the gold backing of America's currency. H.R. 2435 points out, quote, the Federal Reserve note has lost more than 40% of its purchasing power since 2000 and 97% of its purchasing power since the passage of the Federal Reserve Act in 1913. That, that was the act which established the Federal Reserve in the first place, that god-awful institution. But go back just, just a second. We lost 97% of our currency's value since 1913. What have I, what is I, what have I been saying? What have I been saying? I said this in my first anniversary episode, you guys. I said this in my first anniversary episode. I can't believe that they said it. They actually said it. Someone has said it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. Yes. Yes. And yes. This is exactly what we need. This this is it, folks. This is it. I am so optimistic. Now, it, it's probably going to take a... It's going to take until 2024 to get this passed. I'll be perfectly upfront with you. It's, it's not going to get passed with the Democrats. They, they're all on board with the monetary trash, and so are the rhinos. But if we have a MAGA landslide in 2024, we can have real money again. Oh, it's so promising. But they said it. I just, nobody has said this. Nobody says it. 40% of our purchasing power since 2000. That was, I was not aware of that much, uh, but I could have looked at it if I bothered. But 97% of the purchasing power since 1913, I've been going off of between 1900 and 2020. So I guess between 1913 and 2023 would be about the same, perhaps more given more inflation with these past few years. But that's exactly what I've been saying. That's the exact same differential. I find it very convenient that that's the exact same differential between the value of our currency in 1900 to 2020, where a dollar from 2020 would have got you three cents, three pennies in 1900. A dollar today would have got you three pennies in 1913 is what they're saying. They are literally throwing this massive component of my first anniversary episode out at congress for the entire nation to hear this is yes yes this is the way forward we don't we don't need to go fucking make the arabians force other people to pay for their oil in our dollars no get that petrodollar trash out of my fucking face the gold standard is what we need yes yes and yes but uh i'll continue i'll continue i'll continue uh, where am I? Right. So, uh, quote, at times, including 2021 and 2022, the Federal Reserve actions helped create inflation rates of 8% or higher. And I, I'm of the opinion that we're still living in the higher. They just don't want to report the actual number. Uh, but uh, increasing the cost of living for many Americans to untenable levels. And I, I brought this up before as well. People talk about how wages haven't risen since like the 1960s or whatnot. But remember, we have 2 to 3% inflation every year, and that's just considered normal. People were well off with their job in the 1960s. So if you 
had no inflation, if the dollar kept its value between 1960 and today, people would still be able to do just about everything else that they were doing in 1960 with the exact same wages since wages have very slightly risen. It's been been very, very, very slight. It's about the same, but just a little higher. So accounting for population growth and that impact on a market, we would still be just about as well off as we were in 1960 were it not for the destruction of our currency. It's so yes, this inflation is what has driven the decline in our standard of living more than anything else on top of losing our manufacturing base. In fact, the inflation is probably one of the root causes of the loss of our of our manufacturing base. But yes, that's exactly what it's done. It's created inflation rates of 8% or higher. The cost of living for many Americans is risen to untenable levels, which has enriched the owners of financial assets because the money people try to get ahead of inflation and get a hedge against inflation. They do what? They invest in the stocks. They invest in an IRA. They, They invest in their 401k. They invest in a bond or a mutual fund. All Wall Street controlled assets, all government controlled assets, So the people who own the assets, who got in at the ground floor, they make profit, they make bank. And if you, if you know your way around the stock market, you can make massive profits too. But most people don't know their way around the stock market. Most people just put the money in and leave it there. Hope that it rises at say eight or something percent every year, every year or so. So they can get some good returns when they, when time comes for them to withdraw their money and retire. That's how most people look at this. So inflation benefits the financial asset holders. Inflation of homes, if you're a homeowner, it benefits you, which is why people thought it was a good idea back when we first started having this massive rate of inflation in the 1970s. Although truthfully, it was before that as well, but our standard of living was so good we didn't notice because our manufacturing. But yeah. This is it. Uh, when you have these these assets, like, again, homes, if you own the home and you have inflation, well, the price of the home just goes up and you don't have to do anything about it. You, you don't have to do literally anything. Inflation just drives the price of your asset up. Uh, and, and it's only an asset if you're looking to either sell or rent it out. Because if you're looking to live there, the price of your home going up doesn't really affect you much. Uh, if you're If you're buying a mortgage, it actually works against you. If you're a renter, it works against you because they, the people owning it get to say, oh, look, the value of it rose because of inflation. So now you have to pay more for the same or for less. It's like, okay, well, I'm screwed. <laughs> but yes, yes, they've hit the nail on the head with the hammer. And it's in danger, It's empowered financial asset owners while endangering the jobs the wages and the savings of blue collar workers. Cause if you're saving money, but you're, you put your money into the bank. Right. And I remember there was a, like a, a small segment on like finance finances in my math class. And we were taught, we were to learning about uh, interest and compounding interest and uh, stuff like that. And they told us, make sure find a bank account. They can get you two to three, maybe 4% interest. If you're good. So it beats out inflation and it can grow over time. And 
but you look at a bank account today. What are you getting? What are you getting at the bank account today? You're getting a, a eighth of a percent. Okay, <laughs> you're getting an eighth of a percent when we're talking double digit inflation rates. You're losing money. You're losing money. You put your stuff in the stocks and hope that it grows faster. You're still losing money. It's insane. But this is what inflation, it's more than a tax. It's more than a tax. It is blind robbery. Blind robbery. Oh, a tax is a robbery in and of itself, especially the income tax, which I believe we also should be getting rid of. But yes, they. I'm so happy that they've brought this up and they've addressed the, the problems from this. They like they said it, folks. They actually said it. I've been harping on this on that decline in our currency's value for almost two years now. They actually said it. Well, two years on record, you know, about about three in real time. But I, you you have no way of verifying that. But they actually brought it up themselves. Uh, but the article continues saying, "quote," and this is a uh, Reed speaking. The gold standard never failed America. Ain't that the truth? <laughs> The gold standard never failed America. Bad ideas and bad politicians did. If we do nothing, disaster awaits us just as it downed earlier civilizations that spent and inflated their way to ruin. Woo-wee. Reed continues. Today's debt-based fiat money system, fiat being just printing money out of thin air, the, the debt-based fiat money system serves primarily to support big government and wealthy financially insiders, while the Federal Reserve's serial policy of currency debasement punishes savers and wage earners, end quote. Uh, and that, that's uh, Stefan Gleason talking about the debt-based, finan- uh, the debt-based fiat money system. Oh. Yes, yes. And yes, a return to gold, a return to gold would uh, gold redeemability. So like a gold exchange rate or a gold standard would arrest the problem of inflation because you you can only print as much money as you you have dollars. I mean, uh, my goodness, you can only print as many dollars as you have gold in the bank based on your exchange rate. So if you have, again, Say one ounce of gold is worth a hundred dollars, and the bank has, uh, say a thousand ounces of gold. The the treasury, because they'd be the ones keeping the gold, the treasury has a thousand. So the Federal Reserve can only issue as many dollars as you have the gold. And if it's an exchange rate of a hundred dollars for one ounce of gold, and you have a thousand ounces of gold, up oh, your limit, your upper limit on how much money you can print, and this is. Just so important. So, so important. Upper limits on government and government spending and on printing of money. The upper limit, if you have an exchange rate of $100 for one ounce of gold and the treasury only has 1,000 ounces of gold, you can only print up to $100,000. And then you have to stop. You don't have a choice. Oh, my goodness. Common sense i can smell it i can taste it people i can <laughs> i love it i love it again we're, we're gonna have to wait until 
perhaps Trump is back for this to actually come into being. But the fact this solution is here on the is here being debated and being proposed to Congress means that it's going to be there in the wings to be adopted later on when the crisis of our dollar being overthrown inevitably comes and the hand of everyone in Congress will be forced and they will have no choice but to adopt this solution, the sound money solution. Like this is why I'm optimistic. This is why I'm optimistic because the, the root causes of our problems are being exposed as the root causes of our problems instead of, Oh, the capitalists were the problem. So we need to, we need to bail everybody out so that we can, Oh no, no, no. We're, we're looking at the bank failures now and we're going, well, why are you bailing out the bank? The federal reserve is the problem, not necessarily the, the bankers. The bankers need to be allowed to fail. We we've been through 2008 already. So now everyone's learning and seeing the, the, the movie repeat itself. And they're going, wait, hold on. You're bailing them out again. No, don't do that. Wait a second. You're just going to bail out whoever you want. And you're just not going to bail out whoever you don't want. Well, that makes you the problem, Federal Reserve. That makes you the problem. Oh, we're, we're, get, we're, we're looking at an economic catastrophe. We're looking at a depression. And the government is spending all of my money. The government wants to audit me while my politicians are doing insider trading and then giving away tens of billions of dollars to a foreign country. Maybe big government is the problem instead of the capitalists. See, now you start to see why I'm so optimistic about this. But I'll, I'll finish up before I get into more on this. Uh, just like, uh, a return to gold re redeemability would arrest the problem of inflation, restrain the growth of wasteful and inefficient government, and kick off an exciting new era of American prosperity. Yes. Now, this is uh, these last two things I read was from Stefan Gleason. He's the president of Sound Money Defense League. Not he's, he's not a politician. He's the president of the Sound Money Defense League and the Money Metals Exchange. Again, I'm, I'm reading this off of a Yahoo article, but he's still right. He's still correct. And I agree with him that it would kick off a very exciting new era of American prosperity. It would, because it would. If Imagine if we had a strong dollar again. We could buy all the inputs necessary for, a, for industrial production because industry requires materials. And some of those materials we have to source from outside of our country. So the stronger our dollar is, the more we can buy and the cheaper we can make the goods here at home. And because we are our own largest consumer of our goods, a strong dollar here would mean a, a very powerful American domestic market for our producers. And it would be good for American consumers. It would just be great for us all around to have a strong dollar. Like I took, oh my goodness, just yes, yes, and more yes. This is how we deal with the dollar being dethroned from its position as the world's reserve currency. This is the way. Not, oh, we're going to go force Saudi Arabia to keep selling their oil in dollars because we're the, we're the big boy on the block. It's like, no, that's stupid. Look at any empire in history that has tried to force the status quo when that status quo was no longer representative of the reality on the ground. They all inevitably failed in the end. For, and as a basic concept, forcing other countries to use the dollar is stupid. Because you're just asking for trouble at that point. You're asking for a rebellion the second an alternative is made available to them. And you can only use force for so long before your force becomes impotent. 
because before they adapt to you, before they start building up their own military so they can defend themselves from you. Then force comes at too high of a price for you, the person using force. That's why empires built on force don't last very long. Empires built on commerce and economic incentive last far longer. And it, that and outsourcing the value of our dollar to the very countries that we're forcing to use the dollar is also stupid. You're Again, you're just asking for trouble. Our, our currency's value should be derived from us. And that means a currency backed by real physical assets. That means a currency backed by gold, the gold standard. And I love how they, they even touched on how the gold standard would halt the constant inflation of our money. And how that would bring that would help uh, bring about prosperity to Americans in and of itself. Because we instead of this whole because and I, I just can't stand this, like whenever you dig into the economics of it and the things that we are told are normal and good, like and I've been harping on this before, we're told that if we only lose two to three percent of our currency's value, it's OK, as long as the economy also grows by two to three percent. You know, that modern monetary trash where inflation is just normal. We just have to accept it as normal. But it's okay if it's only 2 to 3% as long as your country, your economy also grows by 2 to 3%. Oh, inflation is 4%. Well, the economy grew at 4%. So it, it cancels out. No, that's, that is lunacy. That is idiocy. That is not correct in the slightest. Ugh. I knew I liked those MAGA Republicans. And again, you can see why I'm so optimistic about our future, even, uh, you know, on the other side of the, the greater depression squared, because with solutions like this being put on the table, I believe that as we enter into this coming economic crisis, that the root causes of our problems will actually be blamed for our problems. And then we will have the public will well, the public support and then the political will and political pressure to be rid of them. Be rid of the military industrial complex through demobilization. We will see a shrinkage of the army down to normal levels for our country, which is anywhere between one to 300,000 troops. We will see that when with the death of the empire. We will see the death of the Fed. Because it's being blamed and more and more and more for inflation because it's more and more in the forefront. Everyone's looking at what the Fed is going to do. Oh, they're raising the rates. Look, people are going to get real sick and tired of the Fed real quick. And so when the proposal comes out to abolish the Fed, it's, it's a done deal for them. Because they will be blamed for the problem, which is a good thing. We don't need them. Let's get them the hell up out of here. And I'm I'm looking at not just the Fed, I'm looking at regulations impeding our businesses. People who are out of a job are going to be like, hey, let business do business. And we can go on about our business. I'm looking at the green agenda and all the anti-energy policies. People who are paying, people who are going to be either living without electricity because of, or living with constant shortages and blackouts or living with $1,000 energy bills are going to be asking us where the energy is coming from. Where's our energy production? Why are we not energy independent? Where, what's going on? Why don't we produce more energy? All the right things are going to be blamed for our problems. 
And then we will be rid of them. We will be rid of these hindrances. We will be rid of these things that do nothing but hold us back. And that's going to unleash a titan, a colossal titan. That is the American economy running at full steam. And in a reindustrializing and resurgent America will be the most beautiful thing you have ever seen. America is going to be one hell of a place on the other side of the, the greater depression. And who would have thought we'd get to witness it all in real time in our lifetimes? But that, my lovely listeners, is all I've got for you today. I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. I actually had to re-record this uh, about 30 minutes in because my microphone was off. But uh, the world is changing. We probably won't be the reserve currency for much longer, but we don't need that. We don't need that. We have the gold standard. So even though the world is changing, we will have fun watching it together. Now, I've been your host, Haishan Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, servus.